Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. This month, we're looking at the man and his party. Only one man seems to count in today's China: the chairman of everything, as he's been dubbed, princeling party leader President Xi Jinping. He's seen as all-powerful, the man who's overseen China's emergence as a world power and a new, far more aggressive foreign policy. This episode, we're asking if that's true, and with the help of our guests, we're digging deep into Xi Jinping's history and that of his party to try to situate Xi in a larger context. We're honoured to have two esteemed China watchers, one of the preeminent historians of modern China, Frederick Tevis, an emeritus professor at the University of Sydney, and Joseph Derigian, an assistant professor at the American University, Washington DC, who's written a biography of Xi Jinping's father, Xi Jiangshun, who himself was an important Communist Party official. So Fred Xi Jinping grew up in this very elite bubble、um, in a Beijing compound with people like Bo Xilai, whose father Bo Yibo was dubbed one of the Eight Immortals. I mean, what role did the party play in the inner life of these princelings? Well, clearly, the party was the lodestone. It was the assumption of what was good and proper. To jump forward a bit, at the end of the Cultural Revolution, Mao dies. Hua Guofeng is Mao's last selection as as successor, which gives him one、um, element of legitimacy. The second element, from the perspective of this precisely older generation of Xi Jinping, is he arrests the Gang of Four. Now, at that time, a lot of these princelings did not understand who the hell Hua Guofeng was, and later. Twenty years later, looking back at the situation, there's actually a, a group of them discussing what the hell was going on. What comes out of this about Hua? How can he be leader? He doesn't have the status. He wasn't an old revolutionary. He didn't make this glorious party and the new China that we all know. And this was one of the great weaknesses of Hua's、uh, Hua's position. But within this generation, and within that founding generation, if you want, there was this sense of being part of that revolutionary generation gave you a certain status and claim on a rightful position in in power. Let's go back even further, Joe. This first generation, Xi Jinping lived in very dangerous times. I mean, at the age of fourteen, he was imprisoned for for trying to poison one of his teachers. He was executing landlords when he was in his teens.、Um, and all around him, his comrades are dying at the hands of the KMT, at the hands of bandits, and at, mostly at the hands of their own、uh, comrades. Did Xi, the younger, pick up any lessons from this very precarious childhood that his father had? Well, we do know that when Xi Jinping、uh, was a young boy. His father used to regale the family with stories of his adventures as a young man, and、uh, some of those stories did include、uh, several near-death experiences. In fact, Xi Jinping, on more than one occasion, really did、uh, come close、uh, to losing his life.、Uh, and in fact,、uh, we know that uh, later uh, he would wake up in the middle of the night screaming, having nightmares after、um, because of、uh, memories of a particularly Um, close call, 
you're right that the revolutionary milieu in which Xi Zhongxun grew up uh, was particularly brutal. So it was in uh, the northwest part of China in Shanxi, and the party there had been nearly annihilated by the KMT. It was riven by constant power struggles and betrayals. And in fact, uh, in 1935, uh, Xi Zhongxun was uh, incarcerated by other members of the CCP. And Xi Zhongxun believed that he was facing being buried alive. But what happened was, is the Long March arrived in that region. Although uh, Xi Zhongxun wasn't fully rehabilitated, they were allowed out of imprisonment. And we know that the Northwest Gang, as they were later referred to, was extremely loyal to Mao uh, because of that. So on the one hand, the Northwest Base Camp saved uh, Mao, and on the other hand, Mao saved, uh, at least in Xi Jinping's mind, his life as well. So that was the, the formation of a very long, uh, powerful relationship. Uh, and in fact, even uh, in his later life, despite everything that Xi Jinping had suffered, so many of his, so much of his family had suffered, so many of his friends had suffered under the Mao era, and in fact drew certain conclusions about uh, what kind of leadership at the top would be appropriate and the dangers of strongman rule. If anybody criticized Mao in his presence, he would lose his temper. So this again gets back to this theme of what's a reformer and what's a conservative, and it comes very specifically to the issue of Mao. It's hard to think of anybody who suffered more than Xi Jinping's father, but it's also an individual who is deeply loyal to his memory. Joseph, Xi Jinping's personal history. I mean, he was only nine years old when his father, Xi Jinping, who'd been head of the Communist Party's propaganda division, was expelled for disloyalty for the innocuous act of endorsing a novel about his old commander in the Northwest Field Army, Kang Sheng. Kang Sheng Mao and even Deng Xiaoping had a hand in his downfall. How much do you think that episode shaped Xi Jinping? So that's a very good question. And let me just clarify for a moment to say that uh, Xi Jinping's father at that time was actually the first vice premier. Uh, so he wasn't just the minister of propaganda. He only had that role for a very brief time. So he was the uh, right-hand man, so to speak, of Zhou Enlai. And in fact, uh, after Xi Jinping's father was removed from the leadership, Zhou Enlai was concerned that Xi Zhongxun would commit suicide and ask Xi Jinping's mother to keep an eye on Xi Jinping to make sure that, that nothing happened. So Xi Jinping, as, as you suggested, uh, he was very young when this, when this occurred. And we know that uh, Xi Jinping went into a Great Depression after this, after this happened, uh, and his children would find him sitting in a room uh, with the lights off. Uh, what's so interesting about this as well is that uh, Xi Jinping's father was removed from the leadership earlier than many of the other uh, high-ranking revolutionaries who fell at the beginning of the Cultural Revolution a few years later. So, uh, as we know, a lot of the early Red Guards who were famous for being uh, violent and belligerent were the offspring uh, of the revolutionary generation. But Xi Jinping uh, would not have been allowed to participate in those activities, uh, and it must have been very galling for him to, to have uh, suffered as, as, one of the, as one of the children of, uh, of a, a leader who had fallen earlier even than everyone else. Fred, I wanted to come back to that idea that you had that the party was the lodestar, the assumption. I mean, what kind of psychological effect did it have when you had these sons of privilege who were also watching their parents in this incredibly perilous 
um, background where they're, you know, more than likely to be backstabbed, imprisoned, maybe killed by by those around them. That must have had a really strong impact on 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 these sort of supposedly privileged children. I'm sure it did, but they would have seen the situation through the uh, eyes of their parents as well. And picking up on what Joseph just said, it's not only Xi Jongshun, but that whole generation, which was tremendously loyal to Mao. Now, there's a misperception, <laughs> one of many out there, you know, that part of Deng's whole thing was to demow the place. Well, you have to break that down into various policy things, but also uh, on the other side was the sense of the need to be loyal to Mao and thus to the whole new China, which Mao created. And I, I would just say, if you look through that generation, which, as Joseph would said, they would, the children would be getting the stories at their parents' knees of the great revolutionary ex, uh, thing. You have to think in terms of why did these people become so loyal? Because of the success of the revolution. Go back to the Jiangxi Soviet. It was a hopeless situation. And then in 1949, they're standing on the rostrum of Tiananmen, the rulers of the whole place. That gives you a tremendous personal loyalty, but also interwoven with the ideology of a revolution, of bringing the country forward, which the elite clearly believed and clearly internalized. That type of attitude towards Mao and thus to the whole new China uh, exercise was deeply felt in these generations and they passed it on to their kids. You know, it's one thing to say that Xi Jinping was the son of Xi Jinping, but I think that uh, Xi Jinping and the other princelings, uh, and you know, think about Xi Jinping not just as the son of one particular revolutionary, but um, of the revolution itself, uh, it makes sense to look at what was going on in the 1950s and 60s with, with the princelings, with the so-called Red Second Generation, because it was an extremely sensitive, uh, extremely uh, hotly debated topic. So Mao Zedong repeatedly said that uh, the Red Second Generation, um, the offspring of Catters, as they were called at the time, were a disaster. So why did he think they were a disaster? Well, uh, he was worried that uh, they would grow up spoiled. He was worried that they would grow up with a sense of entitlement. We know that Mao believed that personality and skills were, were formed in a sort of crucible, that they were forged. So on the one hand, you know, these young people were growing up in an atmosphere, were coming from a revolutionary household, they had a great deal to be confident about and proud about, but at the same time, there was a great deal of skepticism in society about whether they would truly have red genes, whether they could truly learn revolutionary qualities from, from living in a situation where everything was sort of given to them. So their reputation further deteriorated at the beginning of the Cultural Revolution, uh, when they took the lead as the, as the sort of old Red Guards. And, you know, they turned away from that later on when they realized that their parents were the targets of the Cultural Revolution. But in the 1980s, they again became a very sensitive political topic. And in fact, the organization department, uh, led by Lee Ray, who was a high-ranking official there at the time, 
had a special meeting with several high with several prominent Red Second Generation to discuss whether or not a special document needed to be promulgated to manage these individuals. And what's so striking here is we we have actually a transcript of this of this conversation. And what we see is that the princelings both feel pride about, about who they are and, and what they've learned from their parents, but they also feel, and this is what's so interesting, mistreated. Feel mistreated because they say things like, I didn't ask to be part of this generation. People look down on me because of it. So on the one hand, you have this great sense of entitlement, but also this great sense of grievance. And what happened during the 1980s is, is Chen Yun in particular felt a sense of crisis that those individuals who had been promoted rapidly during the Cultural Revolution would be the successors to the party, and he hated them because of what they had done. Now, what they had done was something that Mao had told them to do. This was uh, uh, you know, a revolution directed from the central headquarters, um, uh, uh, and uh, they weren't opposed to the party or anything like that. Um, but in Chun Yun's mind, they weren't trustworthy, but who he did believe were trustworthy were the Red Second Generation. And we know from, from a memoir account written by an official in the organization department at the time that the way that Chen Yun's own son talked about this was in extremely brazen terms. He said, um, the ruling class needs to have a consciousness of the ruling class, right? So uh, I think that Xi Jinping can be understood as his father's son, but also as, as, as part of a generation um, can, can provide some interesting insights into who he is as an individual. Um, Joseph, I did have a question for you about that period in Xi Jinping's early life, which is seen as so foundational in party propaganda, which was his time in the countryside. When he was 15, he was sent down to Shanxi province to a village called Liangjiahe, where he spent seven years. And um, I went there when I was a reporter, and the villagers there seemed to say that he spent most of it digging methane pits which I think is not so much in, in the party propaganda. Actually, I had a really interesting time when I went there because the whole village had been closed off and they were trying to stop villagers from talking to outside reporters so nobody would talk to us. But then there was only one person we could find in the entire village who was able to talk to us. So this was this really old man who uh, was incredibly, completely, utterly deaf. So he had not heard the orders not to talk to the press. He was 84 years old, and his name was Xue Yubing. And he was particularly interesting because he had known both Xi Jinping and Xi Zhongshun. So Xue Yubing had worked uh, for the Communist Party in 1947 as a messenger, and he delivered messages to Xi Zhongshun. And I should say, when we interviewed him, it was quite hard because he was so deaf, he couldn't hear any questions. So we actually had to write out all the questions on a piece of paper and hold them up to him. When I asked him to describe what Xi Jinping was like, this is what he said. He often asked me whether I'd met his father. I said, yes, I met him when I was a military messenger. As a young man, his character was quite strong. His lifestyle was like his father. Both liked to be close to the masses. I mean, there's no other way of putting it, but did Xi Jinping have daddy issues? Well, unfortunately, I was trained as a political scientist and not a Freudian, so I'm not sure whether I can tell you whether he has daddy issues or not. So it's very obvious that this Sentan Youth experience had a profound impact on Xi Jinping. Now, what's so unfortunate about that is it's also an especially politicized 
element of his biography. I think we can safely say that um, Xi Jinping stands out as a sent down youth um, for a couple of reasons at least. Um, the first is, at least as he recalls it, in 1969 when he got on the train and he was, he was heading out um, to Shanxi, everybody else on the train was crying, but he was laughing. And somebody asked him, why is it that you're laughing? And he said, well, it's because if I stay in Beijing, I, I have no life. Uh, you know, he was facing the danger of incarceration. And then when he finally got to Shanxi, um, you, know, you can only imagine what it must have been like for him to you know, go into internal exile in exactly the province where his father you know, had, had grown up and had gone on all of these revolutionary ad ad adventures. So I'm sure he saw some meaningful connections there. Uh, we know that he has described this experience uh, uh, as something that taught him the danger of radical politics, uh, of politics that are based on ideological uh, doctrinaire ideas as opposed to you know, what the real world is like. And we know from um, other people who experience this, they had similar reactions. Um, Xi Jinping was in a particularly isolated uh, and difficult place. Uh, which makes him stand out, but also because he was there much longer than most other sent-down youth. And we do know that uh, on one occasion when he left to go visit uh, his mother, who was at May 7 Catter School, uh, which was a place that she had been exiled to by the party school where she worked and was forced to do manual labor. And when Xi Jinping went to find her, he discovered her to be in, in a very rough spot. Uh, and both um, Xi Jinping's brother, uh, as well as a friend of the family, both described Xi Jinping as just being um, horrified by what he saw and that he, he decided that he really wanted to prove himself as a way of, you know, um, finding more glory for his family. And, you know, for somebody who went through this toughening experience, saw what politics was really like in the intricacies of the Chinese countryside and felt the shame of what had happened to, to him and to his family that this can only undoubtedly have a big impact on someone, even though, you know, we don't know the full story as yet. It's almost impossible to imagine what life was like um, for party cadres back in those days. So the party just seemed to be so central to their life. And I was really struck, uh, Joseph, with what you wrote about um, his marriage in that, you know, literally the day after he's married, he says to his wife, well, uh, and I quote, from now on, we are bound together, but I'm not willing to fall into a small faction. Um, and even in his correspondence, his supposed love letters when they were separated for years, all he seemed to talk about was the party and, and his, his current work rather than anything romantic. Um, so what sort of marriage did, did Xi Jinping grow up, um, grow up with? What did, he, what did he see as a child? Well, Xi Xin was uh, Xi Jinping's second wife. Uh, Xi Jinping's first wife uh, was... Um, an individual from uh, his home province and had joined the revolution at an uh, early age and had lots of family who were members of the revolution. But uh, what's so interesting is that um, one of the reasons for the separation uh, was that um, Xi Jinping's first wife wanted to contribute more to the revolution, but she kept getting pregnant and she was feeling frustrated that this enterprise to which she had wanted to devote her entire life was being taken away from her because of the pressures of family demands. So, you know, what's so interesting about the way that Xi Xin uh, and Xi Jinping met was it was right in the middle of the rectification campaign uh, in Yan'an. Uh, she was sent to the region where Xi Jinping was the local party boss as a, as a sort of student representative at the university. And they sort of worked together to manage one of the most famous 
purges in the history of the CCP. Uh, and you're right that um, Xi Jinping used very, very sort of party-oriented revolutionary language in their interactions. And in fact, in one occasion, um, she surprised him and saw him during intense fighting, and, and he yelled at her in front of all these people. And even she admitted that she was a little embarrassed at first, but admitted that you know the, the, the idea of you know seeing personal relations overcoming revolutionary objectives uh, would would be inappropriate. I think Chi Xin also is an individual worthy of study, um, even though she wasn't quite as legendary as Xi Jinping's first wife. Um, she did repeatedly try to run away from home. Her father was a not a high ranking, but a but a but a but a significant figure in in local KMT politics, and later on was even um, close to the uh, KMT leader in Beiping um, before 1949. But the other thing I would say is that uh, this wasn't particular to the Xi family. Uh, this, uh, and I don't want to you know, make a value judgment that this was like a loveless marriage, but uh, well, we have to understand that in that sort of atmosphere, the revolution was the, mo- the most meaningful thing for all of them. On the broader picture, um, there's this widespread idea within China that the Xi Jinping was a was a liberal, um, and he's most famous probably within China for this incident where he supposedly shouted at Deng Xiaoping uh, after he removed Hu Yaobang. I mean, is is there any truth or even meaning in this label of liberal? Joseph is shaking his head, so I'm going to let him talk about that specific thing. As in any political system, you get a perception of someone, and then if you have limited information, and if you have some, how shall I say, bad academic tendencies to to take on A, what the party tells you, B, some misfounded assumptions as to how systems actually work, you come to uh, erroneous conclusions. Now, just a very small anecdote from my own case, because... She did get this image of being a liberal. The anecdote is I went to the Cass Institute for um, Agriculture or Agricultural Development, and I talked to uh, the guy I wanted to see wasn't there, but I talked to some more junior guy, and I, my question was, well, why was it at this particular time in the process of the development of household farming that there was an upsurge? in Guangdong province, where Xi Jinping was the leader at that time. And the guy looked and said, oh, well, Xi Jinping was was the leader. So, end of story. Well, Xi Jinping opposed the bloody thing. So you get these images that go through the system that where exactly this image came from. A hypothesis I'll toss out. Mao chucked him out in 1962, ergo, he was some sort of reformer. And, you know, he was a reformer in some sense, just not across the board. He and, by the way, that forgotten guy, Hua Guofeng, were more important in the special economic zones than Deng Xiaoping. But the history is written, this is one of the glories of Deng Xiaoping's reform program. And, of course, we all know that, as Deng told us, and as Every journalist report will say Deng Xiaoping started reform and opening at the third plenum in December 1978. Forget about the fact you can't find reform and opening in the documents of that plenum. So there is this sense of someone gets a label and then it sort of builds on, builds on. And believe me, 
one can never make a blanket assumption. When was the last time anyone shouted at Deng Xiaoping? <laughs> Not in 1987, baby. And I wanted to ask you, I mean, you can talk about 1987, but the other big and lasting rumor about Xi Jinping that I think has been incredibly influential is that he was somehow opposed to the 1989 crackdown. And when Xi Jinping came to power, that was one of the ideas that journalists depended upon for this idea that he could be a closet reformer. But when I visited the biographer of Xi Jinping, Jia Jutran, he himself had had no evidence that Xi Jinping had ever made a public stand. So are, are any of these rumors true? What evidence do we have, Joseph? And if not, where did they come from? So it's wonderful you asked the question in that way, because the story of 1987, when Hu Yaobang was removed from power, and 1989 Tiananmen Square tell the exact same story about what kind of an individual Xi Zhongshun was and the kind of party in which he existed. So it, in 1943, Mao Zedong gave a gift to Xi Zhongshun. He wrote out the characters that said the party's interest comes first because he saw that to be a defining characteristic of Xi Zhongshun. Now, People talk about factions in Chinese politics, and I can give you a list of reasons why I think that we shouldn't reify factions and that they more often um, obscure more than they illuminate. But one of the reasons for that is because of party discipline. So in 1987, there is indeed this story that what happened was when Hu Yaobang, who was the head of the secretariat, and because Xi Zhongshun was, uh, for much of the 1980s, the individual who managed the daily affairs of the secretariat, meaning um, the right-hand man to Hu Yaobang, the same way that he was the right-hand man to Zhou Enlai in the 1950s, that uh, during the January 1987 so-called party life meeting, uh, which was a, a very irregular, um, informal, um, illegal arguably, uh, body to make a decision such as the removal of the general secretary of the Communist Party, which is what Hu Yaobang was at the time, uh, that uh, Xi Zhongshun, when he realized what was going on, stood up and screamed at Deng Xiaoping. And in fact, a lot of people who talk about um, the, um, Xi Jinping as um, you know being um, filial because he's not liberal and a reformer like his father point to this as a sort of um, totem that represented you know, the bravery and pro-reform sentiment of Xi Zhongshun. But there's two problems with this. First, it shows a lack of understanding of what the politics in the CCP is all about. You don't shout at the core. You don't shout at Deng Xiaoping. This is, so even just from someone who studied you know, what politics is all about would, would, would already realize that this is somewhat problematic. Uh, but based on documents and interviews and memoirs from the people who really knew what was going on, uh, it is the case that um, Xi Zhongshun um, indirectly expressed a little bit of unhappiness about what was going on by saying um, a party member from Shanxi um, is afraid of, of lack of um, stability in the party center. Uh, we know that Xi Zhongshun um, at one point made some comments about not knowing that the meeting was coming, but it was like party knees for expressing a little bit of unhappiness. Deng wasn't even at the party life meeting, so he couldn't even yell that if Xi Jinping wanted to yell at him in the first place. But what's really key, what's really key, is that shortly after the party life meeting, Xi Jinping goes down to the south, goes to Guangdong, and gives a series of speeches 
which were heavily edited in his selected works, by the way, but in the original versions of those speeches, he slams Hu Yaobang. He slams Hu Yaobang. And he praises not only Deng Xiaoping, but Deng Lichun, which we know that they didn't like each other, but he's towing the party line. He's towing the party line. 1989, we know that he was very deeply concerned about what was going on during Tiananmen, um, during Tiananmen Square. Uh, in fact, uh, um, at uh, around the time of Hu Yaobang's funeral, which, which started the protests, um, a standing member of the Politburo, Hu Qili, was crying, and Xi Jinping said, it's not the time to cry. Um, she said that he wrote a letter to the leadership saying that if it wasn't managed well, it could lead to chaos, which was one of the greatest you know, examples of foresight in CCP history, although maybe it wasn't that hard to figure out that might happen. Uh, but we also have no evidence, no evidence whatsoever, that he spoke openly against martial law. He might, you know, he might have, we might not have just heard about it yet, um, or uh, openly criticized the decision to use force after it happened. But what we do know is, is he publicly supported in loud terms the crackdown when it was finished. But what's also important to remember here though is that uh, it was putting so much pressure on him what had happened that he was having a, a bit of a, of a, what looks like to have been a mental breakdown. And then in 1990, at a meeting of the National People's Congress, he screamed at Li Peng, who was, you know, clearly um, the individual who was most associated with, um, with what had happened. Um, and then shortly after that, Xi Jinping went to, the, to, went to Guangdong and didn't re, uh, return to Beijing in, in 1999. Um, so we know that um, it was creating problems for him with others in the leadership, and we know that he was having a bit of a breakdown, but he was also still very, very careful to put the party's interests first, even when it was having that kind of effect on his emotional state. So, Fred, I mean, one thing you raised earlier was this question of whether or not, uh, you know, Xi Jinping is filial or not. Uh, I mean, we know for sure that Xi Jinping disapproved of, of strongman-style leadership, Um but would you sort of say that Xi Jinping in some ways is carrying on his father's legacy by concentrating power to save the revolution? Um, or would perhaps Xi Jinping's decision to scrap the term limits be the kind of thing that, uh, that uh, Xi the Elder would have disapproved of? The question then becomes, what would Xi Jinping have thought of his son's actual policy projections? He may possibly, uh, the hypothetical still living father have approved of some broad things about dealing with problems. I mean, clearly there was dissatisfaction with various aspects of what had been going on under what we might call broadly uh, too much corruption, too much indiscipline within the, within the party elite. So dealing with those kinds of problems, in a general sense, may have been okay with she the father. Again, this is a big segue, but one of the things which is said about Hua Guofeng by people who met him, like Mike Oxenberg specifically, no sense of a lust for power. This doesn't mean you were weak at all. It doesn't mean that. But what you get a sense out of Xi Jinping is a lust for power. And I have no idea what Daddy Xi would have thought about that. But I think it's, it creates unease within the leadership. But at the same time, and this in a sense relates to what Joseph was saying about the party above all else, 
particularly since, well, since the Cultural Revolution, one of the lodestars, to <laughs> bring that out again, is stability and unity. So once you got a leader, you know, you don't have coups against him. And also because I think in his lust for power, she has created both elements of fear of opposition um, and this underlying sense of we can't have major disruptions of the leadership. So what Daddy would have thought, it's a very different kind of regime than what Deng Xiaoping ran. Joseph, is there any sign that Xi Jinping even cares anymore whether he is an ideological heir to his father, or is it the case that the party's interests always have and always will trump all else? If I had to guess, I highly doubt that Xi Jinping believes that what he's doing is a violation of what his father would have wanted. It's possible that he's concluded that to achieve what his father believed in, he needed to act in certain situations differently than his father. But to the extent that this is an individual who believes, like his father, that the CCP is the historical force in China that can bring it where it should go, and therefore everyone needs to respect it as an organization and put their own personal interests aside. I mean, when it comes to uh, the, the war on corruption, I had a very interesting conversation uh, with a senior party historian in Beijing where I said, you know, there's this story that Xi Jinping is a, is a liberal and now look at his father. How can we explain this? Why would he do this? And I was, you know, asking a sort of in a devil's advocate question way. Um, and this was a very self-reflective individual who had a very deep understanding of Chinese history and it was very open-minded on lots of issues. But when it came to this particular question, she grew uh, rather agitated and said, well, it's because it shows there is still a righteous force within the party, that there are still elements within the party that want to save it and they're willing to take risks to do it. Um, and, in, you know, when it comes to Deng Xiaoping, uh, you know, as I said uh, earlier, or at least alluded to, Xi Jinping did not like Deng Xiaoping for several reasons. Some of them were historical, um, but at least when it comes to the 1980s, Xi Jinping did believe that Deng Xiaoping was acting like a strong man in a way that was deeply inappropriate, especially after the lessons of the Mao era, which Xi knew better than everybody else, even though he continued to love Mao. As Fred knows better than anyone else, what was, I think, the, the primary uh, dysfunction of the 1980s was you had an individual who had all of the authority, but he didn't want to look like he was abusing that authority, and he wasn't making the day-to-day -day decisions. So you had this, you know, two different lines, and sometimes the line that was on the front didn't always know what was going, didn't always know what Dung was thinking, um, wasn't, um, wasn't intuiting what Dung wanted. Uh, so Zhao Ziyang, before 1989, um, he thought that whatever he did, Dong would end up supporting him. He was never working against Dong. In fact, he thought Dong was the primary supporter. So arguably, one of the things that may, and this is conjecture, be motivating what Xi Jinping is doing is saying, well, of course, we need a core. Um, otherwise, the system just doesn't work. Um, but what needs to be really obvious is that there is that um, I'm the core. Nobody gets any mistaken ideas. Um, and that may be the lesson that he drew from the Deng era, which arguably would be one that would justify his thinking for the way that he's irrigated power, but in a way that maybe somebody could tell a story was, was different from the way the power was used 
in a way that his father disliked during the 1980s. But now we're getting a little bit into conjecture, but it's a story he could tell himself. Not, not wanting to get too too far into conjecture, Joseph, but I mean, given that um, you know his father was was uh, the right hand man of of Hu Yabang, there was an expectation amongst the princelings that he was one of the liberal princelings. Did anyone in particular guide him in a different direction? Like we didn't know before he took power, this is what he was going to be. He kept his cards very close to his chest, but was there someone that influenced his thinking along the way that made him the man we see today? You know, what's really remarkable is if you look at transcripts of discussions of Liberal Party intellectuals after 2012, they did not immediately think um, that Xi Jinping, even when he started making very leftist comments, that he was going to be who he ultimately became. And you see people like Li Ray, sort of, you know, the uh, the leader of the old guard of the, of, the, of the reform school, saying he's still the son of Xi Jinping. He's still the son of Xi Jinping. On his deathbed, on Li Ray's deathbed, he told one of the children of Hu Yaobang, I don't know what happened. His father was such a good person. You need to go figure out, figure this out, right? And we know that the Hu family in the early days was trying to uh, you know, let Xi Jinping know how, how they felt and how and what direction they thought the party should go. Um, but what's interesting is it was people like individuals who were formerly associated with Wang Zheng, uh, an individual that um, Xi Zhongxun kicked out of Xinjiang for his radical policies against uh, the Uyghurs and Kazakhs there, which is a whole other very interesting story. So, you know, you get these very strange uh, relationships that you wouldn't be able to predict based on old grudges. I guess politics makes strange bedfellows. So, um, Fred, I mean, we've had all these discussions which keep coming back to the role of the party and how important the party was. And I'm just interested in this question of agency, whether Xi Jinping has, in fact, had the agency to move the party in his own direction, to reshape it in his own mould, rather than being guided by the wishes of the party. Do you think, in that respect, he has placed a bigger stamp on the party than than, than other leaders? You know, we keep hearing the the most sort of omnipotent, the biggest strongman leader since Mao. How, how do you think that has happened? Well, one of the things that um, always raises my hackles is that precise statement. And there's even, even a couple of people have said even more powerful than Mao. But, you know, comparing to Deng, she could only dream of the kind of power Deng had. There are various anecdotes, but one of the ones I like best is when Deng came back officially to authority in 1977 on Army Day, and well, it would have been July 31st, I guess, uh, the day before, they had a big meeting with various generals there, and during the meeting, a big photo of Deng came down from however it worked, from the ceiling or whatever, and all the generals got up and (laughs) applauded wildly, applauded wildly, because of his historic status both within the party and within the military. And to go to the post-Tiananmen, he resigns all his positions except for his party membership. But it's still understood that when he speaks, his voice has to be, has to be obeyed. Why? It's not office. It's this historic prestige. And in 1992, he goes south, and we have perhaps the real... Uh, <laughs> 
economic reforms or the, the real big note ones which take us off to where we are, where we are today. And he comes back or he makes these, you know, makes these remarks in, in, in Guangdong, which get reported. Who's in favor of those remarks? Is it the Politburo? No. Is it the other so-called elders? No. But it happens because of his authority. Now, Xi Jinping can get his name like a hundred times on the front page of the People's Daily. You know, you can take a pen and circle each time. Is that the same kind of power? It's a power of office, in a sense. Office manifested now, enhanced by stability and unity. The guy is there, what are we going to do about it? But I would say, um, to distinguish Deng from Xi Jinping, you know, with Deng there was the famous thing, there can only be one popo, only one mother-in-law in the party who has to be obeyed, and that's me. Understand, Deng? And they did understand, but... Deng's way of ruling, and I think this has come up in the discussion, is to, uh, I think Joseph has put it well, is to let various things go on. And then if a point comes where a decision has to be made because of a, you know, as Harold Macmillan, Macmillan once said, what's the main problem of running a place? He says, it's events, dear boy, it's events. Deng only cared about three things. One, party control, economic development, and managing U.S. relations. The rest was all tactics. There's all these groups out there that have to be somehow managed. I'm in charge, do your thing, and I'll sort it out if it becomes too, too difficult. Xi Jinping seems like a very different character. That's why he wants to be the chairman of everything, you know, rather than kind of hiding behind the curtain, which was, as Zhao Ziyang said, Deng's preferred way of, uh, of operating. And I think what this evidently must mean is that he has his fingers in these policies and trying to put his stamp. So many of the things which in the Xi era are so subject to justified uh, criticism, probably internally as well as externally, are really his doing. But I don't know that that's the source of his power. It's the consequence of his power until he somehow really overdoes it too much. Now, Joseph, there's no mother-in-law anymore. So who is constraining Xi Jinping these days? Because we all seem to agree he's not as powerful as Deng or Mao. But what individuals, if you like, are placing constraints on, on Xi Jinping? Who does he listen to these days? This is not a popularity contest. That's not how things work in the CCP. It's not you screw up a policy and you get the boot. It's not that some countervailing group with a different policy platform confronts you at a central committee plenum. If you know Xi Jinping is operating in the same milieu as, as previous top leaders, what's happening is he's not currying for people's support. People are looking to him, working to him, trying to intuit what he wants and give it and try to give it to him. Now that's not saying that he's invulnerable. It's certainly the case that you know a series of um, policy mistakes that you know shake the foundations of the regime, or there is a group of people that fear that Xi Jinping is going to move against him. Um, they may get lucky, and you know the other big question is we don't know whether or not there really are even people who disagree with what he's doing within the very top reaches of the party. Right, so you know we hear the squabbles of of liberal intellectuals who are the most likely ones to talk to people who are in the media and, and otherwise centers and. 
you know, sometimes they, they dream of what they call, you know, an elite revolt or a course correction. Even then, 1962, Mao was fully in control. And again, in 1978, Hua Guofeng let it happen. And in fact, he didn't even, he was the one who supported reform and opening up. And Hu Yaobang, you know, when he went home during the third plenum, he accredited Hua Guofeng to all of the, you know, the big triumphs of, of that plenum, right? So uh, I want to emphasize uh, that this is a very leader-friendly system. As Joseph just said, it's, it's a leader-oriented system. It might get confused when someone like Hua Guofeng comes along as but when it came into an emerging, changing system with Deng rising in a sense, then it became very complicated. And when 1981 at the sixth plenum, Hu Yabang talks about we're safe because of the old comrades, the authorities with the old comrades. As Zhao Ziyang, we're just big secretaries. Well, you know, big secretaries can do a lot and did a lot. And then someone like Dung would take credit for what they did if he liked it or if it worked. Joseph, if I understand, it seems that the two of you have agreed on many things. And one of the things that you've agreed upon is that Xi Jinping's position, the source of his power, as Fred just said, is office. So it's institutional. And that he is a kind of a more rigid leader. There's more lust for power than in the past. But if his, the sources of his power are institutional, does that then mean that he is maybe less secure than we imagine? Because once those around him in the institution, their interests are threatened, there, there might be a moment when that balance tips. Right. So if we're going to put on for just a moment our sociologist political science hats, uh, Max Weber famously distinguished between several kinds of authority, right? There's a kind of authority that you get because you've proven a preternatural ability to judge situations during the middle of a crisis. And then there's the authority that you get because you participated in the formal election um, to which everybody agrees the rules. Um, and if, if you win it, then, um, then, you, then you get to be the leader, right? So uh, we don't know how exactly Xi Jinping was selected to be leader and, and how broadly that was seen to have been a legitimate process. Having said that, he is very obviously arrogating all of the trappings of formal authority. And it's probably not meaningful in terms of authority in the sense that this is like, you know, like a like a voting process that everybody, you know, can agree to was, you know, was a meaningful thing. But what it does do is it's uh, increasingly co-equates the stability of the system with Xi Jinping personally and allows him to involve himself almost certainly in whatever issues um, in which he wants to take interest. Now, uh, we also should remember that when we say that he has institutional authority, that also means he has almost uh, probably a special relationship with the political police, a special relationship with the military. He gets to decide when meetings are held um, he has the right to decide if there are any groups preparing to move against him um, to declare them a faction. Um, he gets to say that if anybody is plotting that they're putting the entire regime at risk. Um, he gets to be the person who uh, makes everybody line up and agree with the policy such that if they ever did remove him, it would be really hard for them to say, oh, well, we actually disagree, but we decided not to say it at that time. Um, he probably has access to all kinds of compromising information. Um, he's uh, whenever he wants to make any per particular personnel decision, 
Um, he has um, the right to do it, to preempt anything that he, you know, he sees is coming. So it's not just this, the formal authority. It's all the trappings of power in the Leninist system, which, you know, Fred and I could both go on and on about in, in terms of just why, um, you know, leaders who, who, who are there, even though they're not vulnerable and um, historically have been very, very worried about their position and been especially proactive, which has counterintuitively brought a lot of problems that they, they could have avoided um, if it had been the other way around. And now finally, you know, the last thing is Xi Jinping's been in power for quite a while and he has certain, you know, skeletons in his closet, you know, things that were arguably mistakes. But now he can point to things like COVID, right? And you want to talk about revolutionary prestige and authority of, you know, contribute to the revolution. Very clearly what this individual is doing is saying, look at the triumphs I've created, which arguably in his mind is similar to the kind of authority that people earlier on in the regime or the revolution had accrued um, by displaying their prowess um, in, in achieving earlier victories. So we always end with asking for predictions, which everybody always hates. What will we see in your prediction, a third, fourth, fifth Xi Jinping term? Well, I mean, I spend a lot of time on history, which is already unpredictable enough. Uh, there's so many things that were only just getting right in the past that, uh, you know, as I, as I mentioned earlier, it makes me very you know, gun shy about predicting about the future. Because, again, this is such a leader-friendly system, a lot of what we need to be able to do to figure out what's going to happen in the future is to get in the head of Xi Jinping. And this is an individual, if you want to talk about you know, defining characteristics, he is unbelievably good at hiding his true intentions. In fact, this is something that people have known him um, for decades, bring up very quickly uh, when they start to you know, describe what kind of a person Xi Jinping was. Arguably, one of the top reasons he did become the top leader is he hid um, a lot of things about himself. And uh, in fact, uh, this is an individual who once said that uh, my father bequeathed me with two things. The first is don't persecute people. And the second is don't lie. And again, we can talk about whether you know his father lived up to that. But Xi Jinping said uh, the first is possible, but the second is not. So your guess is as good as mine. Well, it's not my prediction, but I'll repeat it. It came across from um, someone who can't be quoted, but who talked to uh, some person in, in Beijing and was asked precisely, you know, what's going to happen with, you know, the next party Congress, the next party Congress. And, and the question was, well, is she, she going to be uh, there after the next party Congress? And the insider in, uh, in Beijing said, sure. What about the party congress after that? And the insider said, probably. And what about the party congress after that? Says, no, we'll tell him he's too old. <laughs> That's as good an answer as any. Fred, Joseph, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. It was really fun. You've been listening to Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests, Frederick Tevis and Joseph Derigian. Thanks also to my co-host, Louisa Lim. Our editing is by Andy Hazel, background research by Julia Bergen, our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now.